Good afternoon, everybody. Oh, I didn't hear anybody. Good afternoon, everybody. Good afternoon. Uh, this week was kind of dedicated to uh, learning about existentialism. The uh, the topic for this afternoon is called Freedom of Boundaries. And as you're looking at the video, there are a lot of questions about uh, people asking, why does this happen? How do I find meaning in my life? And uh, and so I thought, oh, well, I'll just I'll Wikipedia existentialism. And so it started out. It started out with a wiki search, and then a couple names popped up: uh, Soren Kierkegaard and Friedrich Nietzsche. I thought, okay, well, these two seem to be the fathers of existentialism, so I'll, I'll read about them. And I probably spent way more time than I should have <laughs> reading, reading, trying to read and understand. And uh, the more I read, the more I questioned: Do I even understand what these guys are trying to say? And uh, should I even talk about this? Because, yeah, it's kind of a, it, it's such a huge, huge topic, but. I thought every person is going to ask himself the question, how do I find meaning in my life and how do I find purpose for the things that I do? And so, um, yeah, just a few Bible Bible texts came to my mind. And as I was uh, reading through some of the Bible studies, uh, Bible stories in the Old Testament, I was kind of inspired to uh, share uh, the story of Abraham with you. And so uh, just to start, if you have your Bibles, um, I'll invite you to turn with me to Philippians chapter 4. And... I want to share this famous verse with you. It's found in it's Philippians chapter 4, verse 13, just by way of uh, introducing this topic and idea. And Philippians chapter 4, verse uh, 13. And this famous verse goes like this. I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. And I have heard this verse shared many, many times over and over again in context of um, if I'm facing difficulty or trial, somebody would quote this verse to me and say, listen, you can do anything through Christ. And it's supposed to be some form of encouragement. And uh, one day I was just reading through the book of Philippians and as I was reading this text, uh, I realized that's actually not what this text is about. If I'm standing in front of a 500 kilo a set of weights and I really want to bench this thing and I think man I can just I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me that's actually not what the text is used for um, I'm not going to be able to live lift 500 kilograms or bench it um, so anyway uh, I just want to look over the uh, context of that verse so if you look at verse 11 notice how notice what Paul says uh, not that I speak in regard to need for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. And so the context of Paul saying that he can do all things through Christ which strengthens him is in the context of being content. And so we keep reading in verse 12. He says, I know how to be abased. I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ, which strengthens me. And this is almost a response to the existential crisis that people kind of go through because there's always this desire to progress. There's always this desire to be better. And if you look at some of the philosophers, you have people like Kierkegaard. He was, he, he, his, uh, 
kind of form of the person who reaches the ultimate level is called a knight of faith, someone who breaks all the boundaries, who almost makes their own rules, and uh, just experiences God in this incredible way. And he kind of was looking for meaning in life. Man, what do I need to do to feel good? What do I do? What do I need to do to find peace within myself? And so he was saying, we need to become knights of faith. And then on the other end, on the secular end, you have someone like Friedrich Nietzsche, who uh, wrote a lot about uh, someone called the the Ubermensch or the Ubermensch, and it's I think it's a it's the direct translation is like Superman. And so he was saying, you know, in society, he was in this place where capitalism was kind of rampant and he kind of thought, oh, everybody is just running the rat race and there's no meaning to life, no purpose. And so if in society we could just take out God, if we could take out all the rules and then this Superman would come into society and make his own rules, that, that would just be that would just be the pinnacle of humanity. That would just uh, then you would find meaning in life. And so there's this, always this constant drive to progress and to uh, take the next level, uh, take humanity to the next level. And so uh, basically, when you read this verse, Paul says, listen, if I'm poor and broke and have nothing, or if I have obtained all wealth and I've experienced everything there is to experience, regardless of what end of the spectrum I'm at, I have learned contentment and peace. And I find this is one of the most challenging passages that I've, that I've looked at in the recent past because basically there are times where I wake up in the morning and I don't want to get out of bed and I kind of think, ah, oh, do I really want to go through the day's activities? And, and there's almost this, uh, like, I just need something to live for kind of thing. Paul comes here and he says, regardless of where I'm at in my life, I have found peace. And it's this kind of contentment that the Bible promises uh, in response to this desire for meaning and purpose in life. And so, uh, yeah, Paul says, in Christ, the answer is found. Now, as I read through scripture, uh, I find that contentment and satisfaction is just one response to the search for meaning. And that contentment and satisfaction won't tell you what you should do with your life, but it will get you to the place where you're open and willing to do what God wants you to do. And in that relationship with God, one finds their meaning. So what I wanted to do was take a specific case study in the book of Genesis and go over the story with you. So if you can turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12, we're going to read through the first four verses together. Genesis chapter 12. And it's one of the very first stories in the Bible about a man named Abram. And later on, his name gets changed to Abraham. But uh, yeah, in the Bible, it talks about this character named Abram. And uh, the the book of Genesis doesn't give us a whole lot of detail as to how this man encountered God. It just kind of starts off by saying, there was Abram, and then the word of God comes to Abram. And we're going to read about this interaction. It says, now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him, and Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Okay, so 
Here we have this introduction of this character, and God gives him this incredible promise. And he basically says, uh, I'm going to do something great in your life. Uh, I'm going to give you this land. And, uh, but what you need to do is you need to exit the place where you're at. You need to leave everything that you know. You need to leave your family. You need to leave your home and then just move. Now, there are a few things that stick out to me uh, in this story. The first one is God tells him to leave Haran but he doesn't tell him where he's supposed to go. He just says, leave. Now, for me, this is a bit of a, a mystery because if somebody comes to me and says, hey, uh, I have this great promise for you, you need to leave Coburg and you will find that promise. My next question is going to be, okay, well, where do you want me to go? And the answer does not come. The Bible just says he he left. And so if you look at uh, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8, I'll just recite it to you for the sake of time. It says, By faith, Abraham went to a foreign country not knowing where he went. And so I find that there is this common, unique situation in the Bible where God calls his people to do something, yet he doesn't give them the answer as to how or where. And so we keep reading, and if you look uh, further on down the text, uh, we're in Genesis chapter 12, and we read verse 7. It says, Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. Oh, excuse me, uh, verse uh, 6. It says, Abraham passed through the land to the place of Shechem, as far as the terebinth tree of Morah, and the Canaanites were then in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants uh, I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And he moved from there to the mountain east of Bethel, and he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west uh, and I on the east. And there he built the altar to the Lord and called to the name of the Lord. So here in the story, God tells Abraham, Leave, he leaves. And if you look at on a map where he was at in Haran, there's kind of this fertile crescent. Here's Babylon, or modern-day Iraq, and then you have Jerusalem, which is modern-day uh, Israel, and you have this fertile crescent, and Abraham is in the middle in Haran. And so he travels about 500 miles, and he's just traveling and walking and walking and walking, and basically he has his whole family. Uh, I'm sure he's got lots of livestock, and he's got um, his goods. And at one point in time, God says, Stop this land right here. It belongs to you. I'm going to give this land to you. And that's kind of how the legacy of Abraham or Abram is born. Now, what I want to point out here is this. There is a gap that exists between where God promises Abraham the land and Abraham knowing where to go. Does that make sense? God says, I'm going to give you a land, but he doesn't tell him where to go. And so there's this gap of like not knowing, well, which direction do I even walk? What happened if Abraham started walking towards China? What would have happened? And so there's this, there's this ambiguity that exists between what God wants us to do and, um, yeah, there's just this ambiguity that exists uh, whenever God wants us to do, to do something. And so when I look at the life of Abraham, the, the thesis statement for this afternoon is this, that it is in that gap, it's in that place of ambiguity 
where you actually find certainty. The place where uncertainty exists is where you find certainty. It's where you find uh, value. It's where you find peace. And it's in that very place where a relationship with God is strengthened. It's in the places of ambiguity. Turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 25, and we're going to read verses 7 to 10. Genesis chapter 25, verses 7 to 10. On the topic of Abram leaving Haran and going to a foreign land, I kind of read through the story of Abram, and you can do this later on if you're curious, and I wanted to know, in Abram's life, I know God promised him land, but when did he actually receive the land? When did he receive the land? It was clearly promised to him. And if you read in Genesis chapter 25, verses 7 to 10, this is the only account of where I find Abram actually owning any kind of property. Genesis chapter 25, reading verses 7 to 10. It says, This is the sum of the years of Abram's life which he lived, 175 years. Then Abram breathed his last and died in a good old age as an old man and full of years, and he was gathered to his people. And his sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah, which is before Mamre in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, uh, the field which Abram purchased from the sons of Heth. There Abram was buried and Sarah his wife. And so... In the whole story of Abraham from Genesis chapter 12 to Genesis chapter 25, there are multiple times where God says, I'm going to give you this land. And that was kind of Abram's life purpose. Go and inhabit this land. And later on, we're going to find out that Abram is supposed to start this nation. But for now, in Genesis chapter 12, Abram's main purpose in life is to go inhabit the land of Canaan. Now, at the end of his life, the only land that he actually obtains officially legally is the very grave that he dies in and so as somebody who reads the bible i kind of ask myself the question hold on god you made this incredible promise to abraham but like the only fulfillment that i see here is that he owns the very cold earth that he's kind of laid into and that that doesn't seem like a very great fulfillment of a promise and i don't know how fulfilling that would be can, can you picture being abram and the Bible says that he left his hometown when he was 75 years old. And he dies when he's 175 years old. So for 100 years, Abram is walking around Canaan, traveling around, and basically doesn't own anything except for one cave. And in his mind, he's thinking, I'm going to own all of this land. And so how do you find purpose? How would somebody like Abram find purpose in his life if he couldn't see the fruition of any of the promises that were given to him, or at least this one particular promise that was given to him. And so, yeah, I if I think about when Abraham's descendants actually inherited the land, you actually have to fast forward about 600 years. Can you imagine uh, waiting 600 years to receive any kind of it's kind of like finally realizing, yes, this promise has been fulfilled. That's a really, really long time. And it doesn't even happen in Abram's life. And so how could someone like that leave everything he knows to do something completely foreign? And the reason why I ask this question is because 
in the Bible, God asks us to do things that are foreign. He asks us to live our lives in a certain manner that is contrary to what we're used to and contrary to what we even want. And so the question is, what's going to motivate us to experience a different kind of a life that, that the Bible is asking us to live? And, and there are several different passages where Jesus says, listen, I have come that you might have life and life more abundantly. And there's this kind of quality of life that God wants us to experience. The question is, well, how do you tap into that? Especially if you read a story like Abraham, and you have to wait over 600 years before you even realize something like that. Will my purpose in life be realized in the future as a history lesson? And is that something that I even want? So going back, there's another instance in Abraham's life where... uh, God promises Abram something, but this promise is realized within Abram's life. And I think that in this story, we can kind of discuss, explore that gap of uh, that place of ambiguity that I was referring to earlier on. So if you go to Genesis chapter 15, there's an interaction that takes between, there's an interaction that takes place between Abraham or Abram and God. And just to give you a little bit of context to this conversation, in the previous chapter, Abram's Nephew Lot has been captured by five other kings. These five kings come to Sodom and Gomorrah. They ransack the cities. They take everybody, men, women, children. They take all of the city's uh, goods. I guess they looted the city and they've taken off. Abram finds out. He chases after them with his servants and he ambushes them and he basically beats he he wins this battle against five kings and he comes back and what happens is he gives all the loot back he doesn't take any of the money and on top of that he has just angered five very influential families i don't know if you've ever been in the place where you did something and you were kind of worried oh no what are the repercussions of my actions Uh, there was a time where i was driving on the road and i tend to have bad driving habits which my wife is is uh she is helping me with my bad driving habits. And uh, there's a time where I honked at somebody. I was really mad. I was like honked at the person. And then the person like pulls over to the side of the road and he's like yelling. Like He gets out of his car. Get out of your car. Like He wants a piece of me, right? And I thought, I'm not going to get out of my car. Are you crazy? <laughs> and, like, and so I drive past him and I see him angrily get back into his car. And the fear is, is this guy going to chase after me? Like I've got a family. Like, and, and 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 the idea is, I have done something. What is the repercussions of my actions? So here's Abraham. He has just fought five kings. I don't know what it's like to be in a place where uh, you've done something like that. Um, and so God comes to Abraham in this uh, at this time. And in chapter 15, notice it says, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision, saying, "Do not be afraid, Abraham. I am your shield." your exceedingly great reward. And so God knows Abram is afraid for his life. And God says, Abram, I'm your shield. Abram hasn't taken any of the money, any of the loot. He's returned it all back to Sodom and Gomorrah. And God says, I am your great reward. And so God is trying to communicate to Abram, I am going to fulfill the needs and the desires of your heart. And this is what Abram says to God. He says, God, I don't have any children. The desire of my heart right now is to have a child. And notice in verse 6, in verse um, in verse 5, 
God brings Abram out and he says, look at the stars if you're able to number them. And he says to him, so shall your descendants be. And in verse 6, Abram believes in the Lord and he accounts it to him for righteousness. Now, this is an interesting statement here. Abram simply believes a promise that God gives to him and it says something, it says that he uh, was accounted righteousness to him. Now, if you turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 4, Paul explains what happens in this interchange. And I think it's in this place that we find uh, an answer for that ambiguity. If you look to Romans chapter 4, this is in the New Testament. There's this whole chapter dedicated to Abraham's response to God's promise. There's a whole chapter dedicated to Abraham's response to God's promise. And if you look at verse 13, it says, For the promise that he, re- that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect. Okay, there's a lot of fancy words in there that are kind of... Um, anyway, Paul likes to write. So in a simple way, he basically says this. Um, the works of the law make void the promises of God. In verse 14, the works of the law make void the promises of God. In other words, if somebody promises you something and you have to work for it, it's no longer a promise. You deserve it. For example, if I have a boss and my uh, pay scale is $10 an hour and I work for 10 hours, then my boss owes me $100. And at the end of the day, if my boss says, oh, you know what, out of the kindness of my heart because I've promised this to you, I will give you $100. That's not really the kind graces of my boss. Like, if he doesn't give me $100, I'm going to take him to VCAT, right? And so there's something that is deserved when it is when you have to work for it. And so what this is saying is the works of the law voids out the promises of God. And God promised Abraham a son. So let me reverse that word, and hopefully this is, the whole thing is going to make sense here in a little bit. The promises of God also make void the works of the law. The promises of God make void the works of the law. So if the works of the law make void the promises of God then the promises of God make void the works of the law. There are some things that God is going to give you that God promises that regardless of what you do, it's going to happen. Does that make sense? All right, that almost sounds like heresy, but I'll try to give an example here. There are a couple promises that God gives that no matter how we live our lives, those promises are going to take place. One promise would be the second coming of Christ. Okay, The Bible teaches at some point in time, God is going to come again to make a new world and to end all the evil that's in this world. It's a promise. And regardless of how we live our lives, the second coming of Christ is going to happen. If I live a good life, Jesus is going to come again. If I don't live a good life, Jesus is going to come again. So here in this story, God comes to Abraham and he says, I am promising you a son. And there's this incredible promise here where Abraham, Abraham recognizes God is going to do what he says. 
And if you look at the remainder of the story of Abram, he actually does things that are contrary to that very promise. Later on, what happens is Sarah and Abram try to have a child, and they're not able to. And they try, and they try, and they try. No baby. And so Sarah says, hey, Abram, listen, I have this servant, uh, servant, uh, Egyptian servant Hagar. You marry her, and maybe you guys have a child, and that's the fulfillment of the promise of God. But that wasn't the fulfillment of the promise. But Abraham says, okay, and he marries Hagar anyway. And they have a son together. And later on, that son causes quite a bit of family problems between uh, Abram and Sarah. Not only that, there, there are moments when Abram and Sarah are traveling along, and there are other very influential people, whether they're kings or pharaohs. They see Sarah as this beautiful woman, and they inquire, hey, who is this woman? And if Abraham had clung to that initial promise, God has promised a child through Sarah and myself. And there clearly isn't a child in existence yet. And so even if, uh, even if there's a king who would, wants my wife, God is not going to give her to that king because her and I need to have this child together. But rather, he lies to the king. Uh, to, it happens multiple times. Abraham lies to these kings and he says, hey, listen, she's actually my sister. And then God has to pull Sarah out of these houses through a series of supernatural um, uh, circumstances. And so my point is this. Abram receives this promise, does not respond, does not act in the right way, and God gives him this promise anyway. And I want to—I kind of want to walk through that story with you. Okay, so um, let's go to the end of chapter 4 because you're already there. And I'll tell you the end of the story, and then we're going to uh, move backwards. So if you look at verse 20 or 19, it says, And not being weak in faith, this is Abraham, he did not consider his own body already dead, since he was about a hundred years old. And the deadness of Sarah's womb, he did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able able to perform, and therefore it was accounted to him for righteousness. So in chapter 15, Abram has this faith, and he believes God is going to provide this child, even if Sarah and I have not been able to have this child. And that Void, that space of ambiguity, is the place where Abraham and his wife have been intimate together and there is no baby. And the question is, God, if you have promised a baby and we've tried to have a baby and we have not been able to have a baby, what is going on? And there is this unexplainable ambiguity that exists between Abraham and the fruition of this promise. And so um, it's interesting here that Abraham has actually not lived a faithful life, but yet here in Romans chapter 4, as Paul reflects on Abraham's life, he says he, he actually considers Abraham this righteous person. And uh, I kind of want to go through the story with you to explain why. Okay, so going to Genesis, going back to Genesis, if you go to chapter 17, uh, 16, and you read verse 16, it says that Abraham was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abraham, so to Abram. So Hagar is uh, the Egyptian servant of Sarah, and 
Abraham is 86 years old now. Okay, so now fast forward, and you go to chapter 21, and it says, "And the Lord visited Sarah as He had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as He had spoken. For Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age." At the set time of which God had spoken to him, and Abram called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. And so the Bible specifically labels Sarah and says, hey, uh, Abraham actually has the baby through Sarah. And so God gives this promise, and there's a specific, uh, God has specific instructions in mind. Okay, so notice verse 4. Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Now Abraham was 100 years old. Okay, so what we know is, how old is Abraham when he first has Ishmael? Yes, 86. And I'm just going to ask you guys questions as we go along, just so that we're on the same page. So, uh, Abraham has Ishmael when he's 86 years old. How old was Abraham when he has Isaac, the actual promised son? He's a hundred years old. How many years is that between 86 and 100? 14. So for a minimum of 14 years, Abraham had to wait for his promised son. Now, when somebody, I've, nobody has ever promised me anything that took 14 years to, to, to fulfill. Like if, if I had a boss who said, oh, I'll pay you. In 14 years, I would be really mad. <laughs> and so, here is this guy, and he is he, now he has two purposes in life. One, I have to um, I have to occupy this land uh, that God has promised to me. Two, I'm going to have this son. But it takes him 14 years to actually realize this promise. And so, for 14 years, how do you find meaning and purpose in your life if what's been promised to you has not come? And so for me, this is a, this is quite a, a challenge of faith. And so Abraham finally receives his son, and God says, I am going to bless Isaac. I've, I've promised Isaac to you, and I'm going to bless you with Isaac. Now, if you go to chapter 22, the very next chapter, God comes to Abraham, and he says, Abraham, I want you to go sacrifice Isaac, your son. I want you to sacrifice Isaac, your son. So, notice here uh, in verse 3, it says, So Abraham rose early in the morning, and he saddled his donkeys, and he takes two of his servants with him, and he takes his son Isaac, and he starts going. Now, is there a contradiction in this story at all? On one hand, God says, I am promising Isaac as this promised son, uh, I'm promising you a great nation. I'm promising you that you're going to inhabit and occupy this land. And Isaac is the person that this is going to happen through. And I'm promising that through Isaac, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. And so on one hand, you have this promise that's given. And then on the other hand, in the very next chapter, God says, okay, now take Isaac and go offer him up as a sacrifice. Go burn him, basically. Now notice Abraham's response. It says in verse 4 and verse 5, And Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship, and we will come back to you. Now, my Bible has that we as plural. He doesn't say we are going to go worship and I am going to come back. He says we are going to go worship and we are going to come back. And so in Abraham's mind, one might think, 
that's pretty crazy that you would take your son to a mountain, pull out a knife, and be willing to kill the guy, because that's actually what happens. He pulls out a knife, and uh, in the story, God stops him, and he says, Abraham, Abraham, stop, 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 stop. I believe that you would withhold nothing from me. And it strengthens his, his relationship with God. But in verse 4, in verse uh, 5, before any of this has happened, Abraham knows, even if I kill Isaac, God can raise him from the dead. No. So regardless of if I go up to offer him up as a sacrifice, uh, Isaac is going to come back with me. And he has this faith, and there's that, that uh, place of ambiguity begins to become less of a problem for Abraham in his life. And I think that's why Paul reflects on Abraham in chapter 4, and he says, this man is a man of faith. And there's something that happens in that place of ambiguity where Abraham is able to handle all the long wait before the promise is actually fulfilled and handle that question of, man, what, what am I doing here? Why am I doing what I'm doing? And so I want to share this, uh, this principle with you in the Bible. Um, in the book of Ecclesiastes, there is this, uh, th- there's a king named Solomon and in uh, Jewish history, there's this king who was probably one of the most successful kings in all of uh, all the Jewish history. And basically, he accumulated more wealth than anybody. He was known to be extremely wise. I think he had uh, 2,000 wives or something like that. And just an incredibly, incredibly wealthy king who was well-respected. And it's in the time of Solomon that there are other nations that are tributaries to uh, Judah rather than the other way around. And so, um, in the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, the, the, uh, King Solomon writes this book in response to his life experience. And he goes through this existential crisis where he's kind of saying, everything that I have experienced and done in my life is meaningless. Like, anything that a human could possibly want to achieve, Solomon has been in the place where he's been able to achieve it. Like, He's at the top of the top, and he says, this is meaningless. And so uh, what I want to do with you is, if you can turn to Ecclesiastes, I just want to look at the last chapter, just a couple verses there. And Paul, or excuse me, not Paul, Solomon writes these, this famous line that is often quoted. And in chapter 12, verse 8, and he calls himself the preacher. He says, vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. And the question is, if somebody who has experienced everything is at the place in his life where he says everything is meaningless, well then what is there to live for? And at the end of this book, he ends with this one line that I find just very, very unique. And if you read verse 13, it says, Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. And so he ends his life uh, he's reflecting on it, and he writes this book that, and, and uh, my wife was telling me earlier this week that this is one of the most famous books for postmoderns. Um, it's just something that really they're, they're able to connect with. And here at the end, his message to everybody is this, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. This is man's all. And my question is, what does that statement actually mean? What does that statement actually mean? Fear God and keep his commandments. And I, I think in this one statement, 
there is this response to this desire to find meaning and purpose in what you do. I don't know if you've ever gone to work and you've asked yourself, is this where I want to be in 10, 15, 20, 30 years? Do I find this meaningful? Is this something that drives me and motivates me? And um, this, is, uh, this is kind of Solomon's response. So the first part of what I want to talk about is what it means to fear God. Because he says, fear God. If you turn in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 130, we're going to read verses 3 and 4. The book of Psalm chapter 130, and we're going to read verses 3 and 4. And this is what it says. And this is David's reflection um, of an experience he has with God. He says, If you, Lord, should mark my iniquities, O Lord, who, or excuse me, if you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. And so David ends this one verse by saying, it is in the fear of you, and then he describes previously what that what that experience is like. And I think this is one of the most accurate descriptions or definitions of what it means to fear God. And so just going back and unpacking that a little bit, notice he says, if God would keep count of all the bad things that we have done, who would be able to stand in his presence? Here is a God who is depicted in the Bible as absolute love personified, pure and his presence his very presence is kind of uh described as being fire and so if you look at uh, psalm chapter 50 verse 3 and you don't have to turn there it just says that the very presence of god uh, has fire in it and as you see different people interacting with god what happens is you see different bible characters like moses and he goes up the mountain he spends time with god and he comes back down and his face is shining and his face is so bright that the people around him say moses you need to put something over your over your head because you're too bright right now. And so what happens is he looks at the presence of God and the presence of God is reflected on Moses and as he looks at everybody else, they're just getting a small reflection of what God is like and they're just saying it's too much for us to handle. Put a dark veil over your face. And so the psalmist says, if in our sinfulness we come into the presence of a pure and holy God, we would be absolutely destroyed we would be absolutely destroyed. Who would be able to stand? The answer is nobody. And so you keep reading in verse 4. And the psalmist says, But there is forgiveness with you. In other words, we are sinful, God is holy, and at the same time, in his mercy, he gives forgiveness. He gives mercy. He gives compassion. And the answer to who could stand then becomes, well, anybody can stand in the presence of God as they acknowledge his forgiveness. And so David is saying, God, I feel so inadequate. And at the same time, you are so incredibly forgiving, loving, and good, which allows me to exist and live and stand in your presence. And there's this acknowledgement of God's goodness. There's an acknowledgement of his sinfulness, and at the same time, his ability to stand before God and be in the very presence of God. And he says, that produces something called, I guess, biblical fear. Biblical fear. It's not a cowering. It's not this sense of like, uh, 
I am afraid. It's a sense of reverent respect of knowing I should be dead right now, but I'm not. And I'm so glad that I'm not. And there's a sense of fear. And so Solomon says, fear God. Fear God. Experience being forgiven. Experience the holiness of God. Experience that reverence that comes as a result of knowing of his purity and our sinfulness. Experience that fear. And what happens is, for Abraham, as he acknowledges, God, you are going to give me that land. God, you are going to provide that. Uh, you are going to fulfill your promises. God, you are going to provide that child. Abraham knows, I don't deserve this. But at the same time, he recognizes the value the love that God wants to communicate to Abraham. And as he responds, God says, that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for somebody who will acknowledge how good I am in that person's life because that's where true worship comes from. And so when somebody receives love from God, there's value that's placed on that individual and it creates the sense of contentment, peace, joy. And it's a result of that fearing and that experience with God. And so Solomon says, fear God. In other words, receive his goodness. And for us today, the greatest way that God communicates that is through Jesus Christ. It's through his life, death, and resurrection where God communicates to us, I love you incredibly. I am giving you forgiveness by giving Jesus to die on your behalf. And that's the message of the gospel. Now, the second part of Solomon's uh, message is keep his commandments. Now, uh, I think all of us have probably heard many, many different messages and sermons about the commandments, so I'll just keep this kind of brief. I think there are several things that can be said about the commandments. The first is that uh, the commandments are split into two categories. The first four commandments deal with us loving God. The latter six commandments have to do with us loving our neighbor. And so uh, many times we are told the greatest commandment is to love God and love your neighbor, and it's actually exactly what the Ten Commandments are really about. And so it's about responding to God's love as that's what fearing God really is. It's giving God love. It's by giving one another, uh, giving our neighbors or giving those that are around us in our spheres of influence love. And so the commandments are kind of this response to selfishness. Uh, last week, Jin Ha preached about consumerism. And she was talking about how there is this never-ending cycle of just accumulating things and accumulating goods. And sometimes we kind of build our identity based off of the things that we buy, right? If I, and I always use the example of the Ferrari, it's probably a dead horse, but if I buy a Ferrari, then I'm an awesome person, right? And there's kind of this, we associate our value with the things that we accumulate, and the problem is it's never enough, which is why consumerism is is a bit of a problem or can be a problem. And so, the commandments are this response to a constant accumulation of stuff. Like selfishness is self-centered. We always want, we accumulate, we gather. It's very me and I-centered. And the commandments are about giving to others. It's like a response to the black hole that selfishness really is. And so God is saying, to reverse that, I give you the commandments. So rather than accumulating, I want you to give, to give. And it's amazing It's to how giving is something that's incredibly meaningful and and satisfying. And uh, I was going online and I was looking at, uh, I I Google searched um, what brings meaning to life. And there are all these different blogs. And a lot of these blogs have adopted Christian principles about compassion, forgiveness, and giving. And so um, 
I would go one step further as to say, uh, giving is not a part of finding meaning in life. Having this principle of giving completely is a principle of life. And I think that's a very challenging statement that the Bible kind of presents to us as, uh, as people who are seeking God. Finally, uh, the last note about keeping the commandments um, is that there is this sense of accomplishment in keeping the commandments. Because with the commandments, the idea of commandment keeping or obedience is morality. Um, and the Bible is very clear that the answer is not morality itself. It's not an end in end in and of itself. The law is not kind of like this thing that you finally achieve. But, um, and so actually let's go there. It's easier if I just share this Bible text in closing. Romans chapter 3, and we're done here. Romans chapter 3. And we're going to look at verse 21. And it just says here, Paul says, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. The righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. And this is kind of a unique text because the law is righteous. The law is good. The law is right. The law is moral. And you would think if the law is moral and right and I'm looking for right, then I find it in the law. And Paul says, no, it's actually not found in the law. And his end result, if you look at verse 22, it says, Even the righteousness of God through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. Uh, that is where righteousness is found. It's in the goodness of Jesus Christ. And that's Paul's answer. So having said that, he's saying apart from the law, it's not the final resting place of our faith. Uh, our faith is supposed to rest in Jesus Christ. But the law still tells us what is right and what is good. And when one comes to the point where they do become moral, there is a sense of accomplishment. There is a sense of overcoming. There is a sense of morality. And the result is um, having a peace of consciousness. And in and of itself, that's something that's satisfying and meaningful. And so um, Solomon ends Ecclesiastes chapter 12 with yeah, those that one statement, fear God and keep his commandments. And what he's saying is, experience the value of God in your life. Learn how to give yourself to others. And uh, there is also meaning in productivity and, uh, and, and obedience. And even though obedience isn't the end, but it is something that's satisfying. And so he kind of says, look, the answer is found in the commandments. And so as you think about that, and as we continue to discuss in the, uh, at the roundtables, uh, I hope that we're able to have meaningful discussions. So may God bless you as you continue in your search.